are in John chapter 7, John chapter 7, and we're going to take our, our time, a few weeks through John chapter 7, looking at it, and I'll explain why as we go through this morning. You know, we, we, sing, uh, we sing a lot of songs here, and there's many wonderful new songs to sing uh, for, for the believer. Um, we sing some of those new songs. But uh, while it's important to sing some of the new songs and enjoy what's, uh, what's being present, the way God works now, there is uh, also an importance to singing the, the old songs and the old hymns too and being able to share those. And we've been singing uh, this month, it's a, a new song with an old message, the Reformation hymn, uh, and we've been singing that because it reminds us of the connection we have with the saints in the past. So it is a, a song about these great truths that connect us to God's word and have connected us through God's word through the centuries. On Wednesday nights even, we've, we've done a little bit of reciting some of the old creeds and looking at some of those creeds that we have had throughout the century and, and the statement of faith that we have. And these are important too because they remind us of our connection with our spiritual heritage and what we have to, uh, to grow on and build on. They keep us on track, these connections that we have with the past uh, and through the ages of Christianity. They help ground us in uh, a solid foundation and they keep us accountable. Here is what our fathers and forefathers passed down to us. This is what we need to hold firm to and strong to. And, and while connecting us to the past and grounding us, they also show us the way forward and where we need to go and how we need to be. They have to remind us of our, the foundation of our faith. But we also have to remember that while we sing old hymns and, and we, we need to stretch some of our hymns further back because I think probably the oldest we sing is uh, uh, through to the 1600s and there's some which are further back I think we need to, to sing. But while we have hymns that go back that far and we think about being Christians and we think through to the first century of Christianity and, and, and from Christ and the early church and the apostles, that these are true. It's also good for us to remember that our faith goes beyond that. It goes further back than the first century. It goes further back than when Jesus was on the earth. Our faith and what we believe, not just about God as a whole, but about Jesus and salvation, extends all the way back to the very, very beginning, when God began all things. So these things of the past, these traditions of the past, are important for us. With that in mind, let's read from John chapter 7. We're going to read the first 13 verses this morning. And... Uh, Take some thoughts from here and expand them a little bit. It says in John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, 
that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up to unto, unto the feast. I go not up yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word, and as we, we see your interaction in this world and what it teaches us, and we look not just backwards at what was, but at what that shows us forwards, encourage us and strengthen us in our faith today. And may we glory and worship in Jesus, who is our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So the events of these verses we're reading here this morning and, and thinking a little bit about this morning prepare us for some of Jesus' most wonderful words. We come to another of the I am statements of Jesus in the, in the, the, the verses ahead and the chapters ahead. And what we see here, what's taking place, is we're in the lead up to the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, uh, is what is often referred to. This is one of the three great pilgrimage feasts. So that was, this is one of the three great feasts where Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem and worship. The other two was Passover, obviously, and the Feast of Weeks. And so amongst these three, including this one here, the men were to go to Jerusalem, there were sacrifices to be offered and worship to take place in Jerusalem. And like all the other feasts uh, that Israel had, this Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder. It was a connection to Israel's past, what had happened before them. And not only was it a connection for their way the way past, but it was a guide for the way forward and where they were headed and what was before them as a people. Now, in the weeks ahead for, for us, as we make our way through chapter 7, uh, we'll see that this feast, this tabernacles, is not just about the Jews, and it's not just about the Jews' history. This feast is about Jesus, and Jesus is going to show us that. And he's going to tell us what this is all about and why it is important. You know, for most of my life, I've uh, avoided much uh, church tradition, if you, you will, that, that way. You know, except for a, a pretty narrow understanding of, of Baptist traditions. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the creeds or following or, or looking at the celebrations of the church like Advent and things like that. Uh, many of those things I just automatically associated with Catholicism. Thought, well, I'm not Catholic, I'm Baptist, so they don't work for me. And, uh, and so even, even things like the Jewish feasts and uh, some of the, the celebrations of, of Judaism, I'd seen too many people jump into the, the, the ideas of following the, the feasts and, and doing all the... the, the the, not the laws, but the celebrations and all those things, and then watch them move from, from that into a form of legalism in, in Judaism. And thought, well, let's, we, let's just hold back on those things. The result was that uh, I had a, uh, 
an isolated understanding of our place in Christianity. Because I hadn't connected myself with so much of the, the history, not just of the church, but of Israel, that there was an isolated understanding of the connection of my place, our place, in Christianity. As I grew in understanding and applying these things in my life, I found there was so much richness to be gained out of the history of God's people from the very beginning until now. And this is one of those moments, Sukkot, Tabernacles. This is one of those moments where we can't just chalk it up and say this is a feast of Israel and Jesus is good for that, but it's something that it, it means we need to pay attention to. We need to understand it. We need to know not only what it says about the past, but what it says about the future. And what it means, not just for Israel's future, but for the future of all God's people. And so in the weeks ahead, Jesus is going to explain that to us. As he shares some of these things throughout the days. And so today, I want to look a little bit at, at it and give kind of an overview of, of what this is and what's taking place here. So that as we go through, you'll begin to see the things that Jesus is bringing out and what he's trying to show about here. As it turns out, and this is one of the things where I wish I'd been a little bit more vigilant in uh, being aware of where we are, as it turns out, today, this, this Sunday today, is the final day of Sukkot. This is the great day of the feast. It started last Sunday, goes for seven days, and the eighth day, which is today, is a great Sabbath and a feast day for, for that. I don't think we need to celebrate the feast in the Old Testament sense, but I do think it can be healthy and helpful for us to include aspects of it in our lives. And I think you'll see that as we, we go through. Because Jesus is going to show us here the, the transcendent truth of the Feast of Tabernacles, how it goes beyond just this. And so I'm going to suggest to you something today. Um, you can take it or leave it as, as you want. Um, we will. Today, when you go home for lunch or for dinner, eat outside. Sit under your veranda or under a tree or go to the park and sit outside. Take your dinner, whatever you had with you, pull it out and put it outside. Eat outside today. If you're going to a restaurant, say, can I have the outside seats today? And sit outside. It's a lovely day. Uh, which is good. You know, for the Jews, very often it was raining during this time. So that was a, a, a little bit of an issue for them at times. But uh, while you're sitting outside, maybe read through Psalm 118 again. And perhaps sing some praises or things together as a family. In remembrance of what we're about to talk about this morning. Hopefully by the end of what we get through this morning, you'll see why I'm suggesting this. We just go through a simple description for the more detailed later. Now, into the, the text, in John chapter 6 and verse 4, we noted that there, at the beginning of John 6, it was Passover. So that's about April in, in our calendar, April-ish. So the beginning of John chapter 6 is, is Passover. When we come to the beginning of John chapter 7, it's uh, Tabernacles, which is September, October, so now. So Jesus, in between this time, he's gone down for Passovers and he will go down for Tabernacles. But in between this time, mostly he's been ministering in Galilee. He spent most of his time in the northern part of, of Israel, in Galilee there, ministering for about six months here between the two feasts. 
ministering there. Tabernacles, as I mentioned, require that all males go to Jerusalem. It lasted seven days and had a great feast and Sabbath at the beginning and a great feast and a Sabbath at the end. We're going to see what Jesus does both in the middle of this and at the end on the great day of the feast. But first, let's see how this sets up and what Jesus is about to do in regards to this great feast. So in this feast, the first thing we see as he prepares here for the feast is Jesus creates a commotion. There's a, a commotion, a murmuring among the people. Verse 1, of course, begins as after these things, the Jew, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So the first thing we see here is we see that there is a commotion among his adversaries, among his enemies here. The Jews desired to kill Jesus. The, the leadership of the Jews predominantly is what, what's meant here by the Jews, uh, by John. They had an intense hatred of Jesus. And we've seen that this intense hatred of Jesus is going to grow very intense very quickly. So we're, we're now a year-ish or so before, well, within a year, really, before Jesus is crucified. And so that hatred is going to intensify greatly. Now, their desire to kill Jesus, the desire of these Jewish leaders to kill Jesus, is no secret. It's not, everybody knows how deeply they hate him. They, they haven't tried to hide it, especially lately, although before they were sneaking around a bit. Now, their hatred of Jesus is open. Everybody knows they, they hate this, this man, and they no longer try to hide their disdain for him. Why, though, are they so angry at him? Why are they so angry at Jesus? Uh, it's certain that, at least in part, there's some issues about power and how Jesus is taking their power, and I'm certain that's part of it, but it's greater than that. Now, remember, these, these men, these leader of the Jews, and while they were, were in many ways um, seeking power and had some ulterior motives, these were people who had given their whole life to understand the Messiah. They knew the Old Testament. They were the ones who were waiting for it. And despite all of the distractions and all of the problems they had with all of their extra rules and the things they had added to the law and, and all of those bits, it was all there in the anticipation of the Messiah and looking for the coming Messiah. So despite how distracted and off course they had become, they had given their lives to see the Messiah. They still believed the Messiah would come. They were still waiting for the Messiah. So in the life of people who had given themselves to know the Messiah, to look for the Messiah, to wait for him and to see him come, in comes Jesus, who really ruins everything for them because he says, I'm the Messiah. And they say... You're not what we expected. You can't be the Messiah. So Jesus has completely thrown everything they have given their lives for into turmoil. Everything they have spent their lives chasing and understanding. Jesus has flipped on its head. They're looking for the great king and he comes as the one who's going to die. Just think, just through the, the few chapters of John that we have gone through in the last couple of months... Think of the things that Jesus has claimed to be in these times. 
John chapter 3, he's claimed to have come from heaven. He claimed not only did he come from heaven, but he claims to be sent by the Father. He has claimed also throughout John chapter 3 and others that he is the Savior of the world. He has claimed through many places, John chapter 3, John chapter 5, that he is the determiner of destinies. So eternity and the kingdom hinges completely around himself, not something else or someone else. He has claimed also that he is the only way to God. Now these are all claims that he has made before chapter 7 in, in John. He has claimed, even in the last chapter we looked at, chapter 6 and chapter 5, that he is equal with the Father. And that's one of the things that set them off. He has shown them, not just claimed, but he has shown them he has the power to raise from the dead. He has told them in John chapter 5 that the whole Old Testament pointed to him and him alone. He is the one who told them in John chapter 4 that out of all the people they idolized most, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is greater than them all. He has told them in John chapter 6 that he is the bread of life, the source of spiritual life. He has called himself the light of the world already in John chapter 3. He has claimed directly to be the Messiah and said so. And amongst that, he has said to them, he is the Son of God. He said all of those things and claimed all of those things and never denied any of them throughout his life. That's why they are so angry with him. Because he is a man who is claiming to be their Savior, their Messiah. And so they are angry and ready to kill him because he is the opposite of everything they had hoped for everything they had longed for, everything they believed, and were too stubborn and arrogant and proud to see the truth. And so Jesus comes to this time, and we see Jesus' divine timing here. Some get confused by this because at one point Jesus says he's not going to the feast, and then he does go to the feast. But what Jesus is saying is that he is going to go to the feast on his own terms. And there's a reason, and we're going to see the reason why he chooses to do what he does this way in going on his own terms and in his own time. It's not yet his time to die, he tells us. So he has a purpose for this trip. Verse 10 of our, uh, our text here in chapter 7 says that he went not openly, but as it were in secret. So when he does go down, he goes down and he goes down quietly and he sneaks into Jerusalem. He doesn't go with his family, he doesn't go with the others, he goes by himself and he sneaks in quietly. But then having gone down, sneaking down quietly, knowing that the Jews are looking for him and, and want to kill him, we find in verse 14, despite going quietly, now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So in, he goes down quietly, he sneaks into Jerusalem, and then at the middle part of the feast, he goes into the temple and he stands up and he teaches openly. And then we come down to verse 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
And then on the last day, the pinnacle of the feast, the, the great celebration of the feast, Jesus stands up in the middle of the temple and cries out to them and preaches very publicly, very openly. Why? Why does he do this? Because Jesus is not there to celebrate the feast. Jesus is not there to celebrate the feast of tabernacles. He is there to show them he is the one to be celebrated at the feast of tabernacles. He is there to say, this feast is mine. I am the focus. And so he causes turmoil with his adversaries, but we also see he causes turmoil and commotion with his family. Verse 3, it says, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou doest these things, show thyself to the world. Jesus is being mocked by his family. The commotion that goes on isn't just amongst the leaders, it's amongst even his very own family that reject him. The people that are referred to here as brothers are his brothers through uh, Joseph and Mary. This is James, Joseph, Simeon, and Judas. By God's grace, these men will believe, but here they do not. In fact, they're the opposite. They reject him. They mock him. It seems, through several of the passages through the Gospels, that these men, these brothers of Jesus, you will, are embarrassed by him. Can you imagine if you had a brother who was walking around saying, I'm the saviour of the world, and he came from Galilee? You know, look, Armadale? Sorry. You go, that's, that's not, that's not a saviour. He's a joke. He's not really part of our family. He's the black sheep of the family. It's, it's, it, they, they seem to be embarrassed by him. And so firstly, they tell him to go to Jerusalem. They say, go down to Jerusalem. Now they know that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are looking for him. So what are they telling him? They're saying, go to Jerusalem, get caught, get killed. They knew what would happen if Jesus went down there openly. They're not idiots. They knew exactly what they were saying when they were telling Jesus to go down there. So they're not just hostile, but they're also mocking. You know, the verses there that, that tell us, verse 3 and 4, they're essentially saying, you know, what are you doing here in Galilee? You're not going to get the attention you crave in Galilee. These are just little country towns. You, you want to be, be a, a messiah? You want to be the king? You don't need to be here. You need to be in the capital. So what are you doing parading around here in these little towns? pretending like you're something great. Which goes on to the next mockery. You're hiding in these little country towns because you're a fake. You're not really who you say you are. That's why you won't go down there. That's why you won't go to Jerusalem and show your disciples who you are. You're a fake. You're a deceiver. They hadn't yet grasped the truth after the resurrection, they would. Can I give a quick side note here, just because this is dealing with, with family, and, and just quickly here, 
some ways to reach your loved ones for Jesus Christ. Because that's perhaps one of the greatest burdens we all have on life. And maybe I, I put this list in the notes. I can't remember if I left it all in or not, but it's there. Pray for them. There's nothing surprising about this at the beginning. We pray for them believing that God will save because salvation is from God. And only God can save. Secondly, live a blameless life. And by that I don't mean to be perfect. I mean pursue not to be a hypocrite. That is to live a godly life before them. Live in a manner which shows the beauty of Jesus. Speak to them clearly and directly at least once. And that's something we, well, we say, I pray for him, I pray for him, I pray for him. And, and, and you know, I'll ask people, you pray for him, but have you, have you spoken to them of the gospel? Well, they've heard it at church. They've put rap. It needs to come from your lips at least once. At least once in their lifetime. Share the gospel with them from you. Another good way is to make an agreement with a friend that you will share the gospel with each other's family. Okay, when I have the chance, I will share the gospel with your brothers and sisters and your parents if you will do the same for me when you have a chance. And showing love one for another in these ways. Be rich in good works. That is, reach, reach out. And, and don't be, be stingy and don't, don't cut yourself off from them because they're unsaved, but reach out and show them the love of God in the generosity of heart. And of course, seek first the kingdom of God. Just immerse yourself in God's word. Find encouragement and strength there. If it's for your children, you can perhaps add these things. Set an example and use every opportunity. Opportunities to set examples and teach your children about God and the gospel are everywhere and in so many different ways. So set an example and set in your mind, I'm going to take whatever opportunities I have, whether it comes with something that's said on TV or something that happens at school or something that happens in our family, to let them see the gospel is at work. Establish family devotions and be consistent. At some time... During your day, sit and share the gospel and read God's word and teach the whole gospel. It is that the gospel reaches to the whole life and that it is about sin and Jesus and resurrection and repentance. Just a, a side note as we look here at Jesus' family. So Jesus creates a commotion with his adversaries. He creates a commotion with his family. And he creates a commotion with his onlookers. Verse 12 says, And there was much murmuring or complaining and mumbling and talking among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others says, No, but he deceiveth the people. Albeit no one speak openly of him for fear of the Jews. So nobody's talking openly about Jesus because they're afraid of what it might do. But amongst themselves, they're, they're murmuring and they're, they're talking and they're whispering and, and sharing with one another. And some are saying, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. Like, he's done miracles and he helps people. And there's, there's, he's, he's a good man. He does good things and he helps people and he sets a good example. But Jesus claims, so the very things that Jesus have said about himself exclude him being just a good man. So Jesus himself says, I I'm not just a good man. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to be a good example or to set a, a, a good way and, and just be at that. I'm more than 
that. Jesus taught that being good doesn't get you to heaven. So some were going and walking around and thinking, well, he's, he's a good guy. We can't discount because he's a good guy. Others were saying, um, well, maybe he's good, but I think he's a fake. He's a deceiver. He's pretending. He's trying to draw us off. He's, he's just another con man. He's just another cult leader. He's just another one of these revolutionaries that comes along and tries to stir us up. It's just another, we've seen a thousand of them. They come and they go. They didn't think he was genuine. And that's part of the accusation of his brothers. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He's got to be one. So either he's lying about who he is and what he does. He's a lunatic. That is, he's just out of his mind and he's crazy. And whatever he says is just ridiculous and mentally disturbed, or the claims that he makes are absolutely true, and that makes him Lord. And those are the three options we have about Jesus, and those are where Jesus leaves us, is I can't be a liar because you've seen what I do. I'm not a lunatic because you've seen and you've lived with me. You know who I am. I must be Lord. So this is where he's at. He causes a commotion amongst the people at the feast, but then we see him celebrating his presence in the feast. And there's three thoughts I want to draw out this morning about the, the feast here as we go through. Three thoughts, three broad thoughts about the feast that we will see Jesus expand and explain as he goes through this feast. First, his presence in our wandering. I've left in the notes, if you have them there in the outline, uh, a list of the scriptures where you will find um, most of the mentions of the Feast of Tabernacles throughout the Old Testament in there where it's mentioned. So at the time you want to read through it or think about it, you can. We'll refer to a few of them. Now, going way back into history, in Genesis chapter 33, we see Jacob. Jacob comes back and he is reunited with his brother Esau after a, a horrible fight, and, and but they get reunited after he meets and is reunited with his brother, Jacob sets up camp in a place that he calls Sukkot. There he sets up tents, he sets up tabernacles or booths for his cattle and his, his herds, and he builds himself a house there and calls it Sukkot. And many years later, after Israel has gone into captivity, and then when God miraculously brings them out of Egypt, they cross over the Red Sea. The very first place that they camp, having escaped the Egyptians, is Sukkot. They camp at that same place. Now the word that's used, Sukkot, means booth, tabernacle, tent. That's what it is. This, when they camp there at Sukkot, is the beginning of 40 years of camping. Uh, I almost titled my sermon, Camping with Jesus. Uh, it's essentially what this is. They are camping for 40 years in the wilderness, uh, making their way through it. While they are on this journey, God establishes a feast, a memorial or a celebration for them. And let me read you one of the descriptions of that from Leviticus chapter 23. You can turn there and follow if you like or just listen. Leviticus 23. I'm going to read from verse 33 where God explains what this feast is about. Leviticus 23 
uh, and verse 33. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation unto you. And you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. And you shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which he shall pro proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and a drink offerings, everything upon his day, besides the Sabbath of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings which ye give unto the Lord. Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath, and ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in a year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. And all the Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So during this time, this feast that they had, they were to gather together branches part of the branches, so they gathered branches of palms and things like that, and some of those they were to wave around and shake while they praised. But they were also to gather these particular branches and, and sticks from certain trees and make a shelter and build a little shelter out of, uh, in, in the open out of these twigs and branches and, and leaves. Every day there were sacrifices. It started on the first day, they sacrificed 13 and then 12 and then 11 and so on until the end there was a total of those sacrifices of about 70 plus the other smaller sacrifices that went along with it every day. As it was said here in Leviticus, it was a reminder of God's deliverance, God's protection and his care in the wilderness. So by the time Jesus uh, comes along and they're celebrating it there, obviously they're not wandering anymore. And so what they would do is they would go and they would gather all of these sticks and these branches. And particularly as the men came to Jerusalem and anywhere there was space, they would build these little tents, these tabernacles, these booths. Many of them would build them in the courtyards of their home or on the roofs of their home and in the open spaces and in the, in the places around the near the temple. And, and so you'd go into Jerusalem and the place would be covered with these temporary booths, these little tents made out of sticks and leaves all over the place. And they would go in and they would spend those seven days in there. Now, what it also became is because it was rainy season when they didn't need to, as they were to eat in there, but if it was rainy, they could go inside and sleep. But they would build these and they would sit out there and they would worship in them and, and celebrate in them and, and have a camping week together as a nation. They'd live in them, they'd eat them in them. In the temple, in the, uh, the court of the women, they would erect four great uh, candles. 
These candles were about 20 metres high, filled with oil, oil candles. And they would take the old garments of the priests, the ones that were worn and, and ruined, and they would wind them up and they would make wicks out of the old priests' garments and they would light these candles. These candles were so big and so bright that it said you could see the glow of this candle all through the city. And the light just beamed from the temple of God around. The candles which they would light there in the tabernacle represented the presence of God in the pillar of fire through the wilderness as God led them with that great pillar. It was also lit as a hope in the belief that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. This whole season of, of Sukkot, of tabernacles, was meant to be a celebration, a time of praise and joy. And so they would go and they would eat and they would, would enjoy the, the fruit of their harvest in their tents and they would see the glory and, and they, they would take their, their leaves and their palms and they would go into the temple and they would dance and they would sing and they would praise. It was a joyous and wonderful celebration. Just like at the Passover, they would read through the Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, which speak of God's deliverance and his blessing on his people. And as, as they would go around, and particularly on the last day, the, the men would take their, their leaves and, and their branches and they would circle around the altar, singing and shaking. And as they came around, they would quote Psalm 118, verse 25. Save now, I beseech, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech, send prosperity. As they looked on what God had done and hoped for what God would do. In Nehemiah, one of my favorite times of, of history, it's, it's dark and it's unsettled, but there's such rays of light in there. In, in Nehemiah chapter 8, as the people are gathering and they've rebuilt the wall and they're, they're getting themselves back together, Ezra stands up and he starts reading from the word of God. And they come to the place where it describes the, the, the tabernacles and they realize that here we are, we're, we're reading about the Feast of Tabernacles and that's this time now. And so they go, and immediately they gather it all together. And in Nehemiah 8.17, it says, They celebrated tabernacles that time with a joy that had not been seen since the days of Joshua. Because they had not only remembered the deliverance from Egypt, but they were standing there in Jerusalem remembering the deliverance from Babylon. Filled with joy. It was a reminder of their wandering and of God's care in their wandering. But it's also a reminder of the wandering through this world. This is not just a picture of Israel's wandering. It's a picture of the pilgrimage of God's people. As we wander through the world, see, the promised land in the Old Testament is seen as the place of rest. It's a picture, it's an idea of heaven, of where we're headed. And until we reach there, we are wandering through this world. Hebrews 11 reminds us that like the people of old, we are strangers passing through this world to a better home. Psalm 119, I am a stranger in this earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. Tabernacles for God's people is a reminder not to settle, not to make your home here.
We're going somewhere. We're headed somewhere. As Israel passed through the wilderness to the promised land, so we pass through this world to the great promised land. And just as they dwelt in tents, so we dwell in a temporary body. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is all about that, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4 gives us some wonderful encouragement in this regard. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14 says, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, abound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for, for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Tabernacles isn't just about Israel. Tabernacle is about God's people. One of my great heroes of the faith, David Brainerd, penned some words which were made into a, a hymn. And one of the words, the, the verses of that hymn uh, of his words from his journal says, Lord, I'm a wandering pilgrim here alone. I pine while absent from my dearest one. No lasting comfort can this earth afford. My very soul belongs with you, my Lord. That is the heart of tabernacles. His presence is our blessing. We are thankful for his blessings. And I know I'm going a little longer than I normally go, and I hope you'll stay with me, because I want you to see the great picture of tabernacles in its whole. We're thankful for his blessings. One of the other names of tabernacles was the Feast of Ingathering because it was a feast with, that was, came along with the harvest. It was the last feast of the last harvest. So with this feast, they move into the rainy season and the, the cold weather. So they celebrated the last of harvest time was accompanied, of course, by daily sacrifices and, and offerings which they would give of themselves. Because not only was it a celebration or a remembrance of what was past and how they were delivered, but it was also a celebration of thankfulness to God for his provision. How, in the past, through the wilderness, God provided for his people, and how, even now, God still provides for his people. It was a time of thanksgiving, thankfulness for God and providing crops, but it was also not just a thankfulness for what he had provided, but it was a waiting for his blessing too. A thankfulness for what had been and a waiting for what was to come. While they looked back in thanks, they also looked forward in hope. One of the traditions that, that was part of the Feast of Tabernacles was the priest would take a, a pitcher uh, and he would go to the Pool of Siloam. They would go to the Pool of Siloam because it was a, a spring so it could be living water, fresh running water. And they would take this pitcher and they would dip it into the pool of Siloam and they would bring it back to the temple. And next to the, the great altar was a, a, a basin they had and they would pour that water 
symbolically into the basin next to the temple. The picture that they were doing when they took that water and poured it into that basin was it was a, a symbol, a prayer of God's blessing for rain. God, we have harvested. Now send rain. You have blessed with good harvest. Now bless with rain. So it was not only a celebration of what God had done in the past, but it was a celebration of how God would provide in the future. That he would provide rain for the next harvest. And the next part. A prophecy of Peter refers to this, or Peter refers to the prophecy of this in, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Because not only does it a hope of what was to come in rain, but it was also a hope of what was to come with the Messiah. They believed that when the Messiah came, so would the Holy Spirit come in power. And so the pouring of the water into the basin was also a symbol that when the Messiah comes, so his Spirit would come. And so Peter, in his great sermon in Acts 2, quotes from Joel, the Spirit is here. He is keeping his promise. Tabernacles is a reminder to us to look to God in thanksgiving and hope. Here is my last thought this morning, and it is his presence in our saving. His presence in our saving. God dwells with us. Why would Jesus, and he is going to make this claim that this is about him, why would Jesus make this claim that this is about himself? What did John tell us about Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 14? And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. God is with us. It is a celebration about the presence of God, the saving presence of God. This is a feast about God being with his people. It's no longer a pillar of fire and it's no longer in the holy of holies. God is dwelling with his people. Tabernacles is about Christ coming. God manifest in the flesh. And like the rest of tabernacles, this was a temporary tent. This coming of Jesus, tabernacling amongst us, was a temporary thing designed to get us to look forward again. Because while God dwells with us, we will dwell with God. In Zechariah, we are told that the Feast of the Tabernacles will be celebrated during the Millennial Kingdom, during Christ's Kingdom. We're not going to be offering sacrifices for salvation or anything like that. But we're told we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles during that time. Why? What is it all pointing to? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven being, uh, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The temporary tabernacle is pointing us to the glory of our eternal home. 
when he will be with us eternally. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, tabernacles. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Why? That where I am, there you will be also. Tabernacles is not an, an ancient, irrelevant feast. Tabernacles points us to look to eternity. When God will dwell with us and we will dwell with God face to face. It's a reminder that God was present, God is present, and he will be present. Tabernacles, or Sukkot, is a reminder that Jesus is our dwelling place. He is our eternal home. He is our great and glorious hope. So have lunch outside today. Sit under your veranda, under a tree, and remember that because of Jesus, you're just passing through this world. This body, this life, is temporal for something far greater, for something eternal. Give thanks to God for his abundant blessing. The blessing of redemption and forgiveness. The blessing of provision for protection and for deliverance. The, the blessings of family to worship with. Give thanks to God for the promise of the hope of eternal life. For the presence of the Spirit. For his seal upon your life. Rejoice and sing praises that God dwells with you today. And he will dwell with you in the future. That one day, as his child, as his people, we will see him face to face. No longer a tabernacle, but a home. An eternal home. So like the lights of the tabernacle, may our life be bright and shining like a light to the world that Jesus saves. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to get a small glimpse of who you are through this feast, through this example of what you are in this world. Lord, fill our hearts with thanksgiving and with hope, thankfulness for what you have done and hope for what you will do. Remind us not to settle, that we are just strangers passing through. We pray these things in Jesus' name.